BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy November. It's the beginning of a new month and uh, two months away from a new year. And there's an election in uh, about a dozen states, I believe, uh, nearly. And a lot going on. David Sirota is going to drop by. He is involved in producing a new movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It's very cool. We'll tell, he'll tell you about that. Plus, there's a bunch of stuff that he's up to that I wanted to share with you. And uh, our geeky science. America has to stop eating plastic, and it's not just the microplastic. Want to get into uh, cinema becoming a Trumpian or maybe even a Republican? And then, of course, my main op-ed for the day, uh, published over at HartmanReport.com. The headline is, the GOP's number one issue is the survival of white supremacy. And interestingly, I, I, I found this photo over at uh, Wikimedia Commons of a 1959 Little Rock rally against segregation or against integration in favor of segregation. And all these white people in front of the state capitol holding signs that say, race mixing is communist. Stop the race mixing. Race mixing is communism. Um, turns out it was the John Birch Society, apparently, that was providing most of those signs, um, and that actually is a consequential story, which we'll get, we'll, we'll get into here. In fact, let me just start out. For Democrats all across the country and for Democratic voters, there's this whole pile of issues that are on the ballot in the elections across the country. You've got climate change, you've got free college, you've got expanding Medicare, you've got family leave after giving birth, you've got pre-K education, you've got the middle class tax cut, you've got a child tax credit. You have the minimum wage, there's the right to unionize, and literally dozens of other lower profile issues. For Republicans, though, there's really only one issue on the ballot, race. That's it. When they talk about getting tough on crime, it's about race. When they talk about education in our schools, it's about race. And really, it's not even just about race. What Republicans are voting for and voting on in many of these races around the country is frankly the survival of the political and economic variations of white supremacy in the United States. You know, 40 years ago, Republicans pretended that they were about something other than white supremacy. 
actually this is 50 years ago, but they needed the white supremacists to win electoral victories. This is back in the 60s because the home of white racists prior to 1964 was the Democratic Party, by and large. The Republican Party, there were a lot of African Americans across the United States who, who were registered and voted as Republicans. That was the party of Abraham Lincoln. It was the party that ended slavery. But all that changed in 64 and 65 when the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act were passed by a you know, democratically controlled Congress and signed by a Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson. Republicans used to talk about, you know, step by step and all that kind of stuff. No more. Um, Dwight Eisenhower, for example, calling, you know, he says, this is what I mean by my constant, this is a letter to his brother, Edgar, my constant insistence upon moderation in government. See, this is how Republicans used to talk like 60 years ago. He says, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security, unemployment insurance, and eliminate labor laws and farm programs, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. Well, we're there. He goes on to say, there's a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid wrote Dwight Eisenhower to his brother. This was in response to his brother, Edgar, sending him a letter saying, uh, basically, uh, Social Security is the, the opening door to communism. Keep in mind, this was 1954. So Eisenhower re references H.L. Hunt. H.L. Hunt was then the richest man in the world. He was a Texas oil man, and he was a major supporter of the white supremacist John Birch Society, which supplied presumably supplied those signs for that 1951 sign, 59 sign, uh, that 1959 protest where the signs said race mixing is communism. Hunt was such a segregationist that he not only financially supported George Wallace, the Democrat who said, you know, segre segregation now, segregation forever, but he also supported the Nation of Islam's Elijah Muhammad financially because he advocated black and white people living separately. All that changed when Richard Nixon came in and said, no, we're going to invite these folks in. But, but before I get to that, in, in well, actually, that, that was it. In 1970, during the Nixon presidency, Richard Nixon had been president for two years, and James Boyd wrote a commentary for the New York Times titled Nixon's Southern Strategy. This is back in 1970. And he was quoting from a piece that Kevin Phillips had published in 64 in which he said that there was a backlash coming to the New Deal and this would sweep Republicans into office within the next decade. Now we're in 1970 and James Boyd writes this piece in the New York Times and Phillips had said, uh, you know, J Thomas Jefferson was in favor of small government, so are Republicans and America will return to that wisdom, you know, words to that effect. So uh, James Boyd writes this piece, he says, but the analogy is not with Jefferson, it's with Hitler. The elements are all there, deep-rooted social cleavage, insoluble problems, rhetoric which attempts to legitimize and encourage hate. Keep in mind, this was 1970, he was referring to the Republican Party. A phony genetic and geographical underpinning, a despised minority to blame for everything, it all adds up to scapegoat politics, which is a tactic of fascism. The new gains of the Republican Party are based, keep in mind, he wrote this in 1970. 
acknowledging Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. This is when the party turned. The new gains of the Republican Party are based upon preserving the status quo by stopping the civil rights advance. But the status quo is racist. The Nixon administration tries to legitimize this. To say we are to stop progress on integration now, to pervert the moral authority of the presidency in order to make white people feel more comfortable with their prejudices, and that's what's happening today, is to say that we accept racism. And to build a political majority based on racism is taking a long step toward fascism, wrote Richard Boyd in the New York Times in 1970. And so now here you've got Republicans echoing this, this white supremacist theory. They live in this zero-sum world, which is, by the way, not the world we live in. But in their fantasy world, when all people get jobs, Republican white supremacists believe that white people must lose jobs. When all people get voting rights, Republican white supremacists believe they'll end up with politicians who no longer put white people's interests first. When all people get housing rights, Republican white supremacists believe their housing opportunities are damaged. When all, people, when all people's history gets recognition in schools, Republican white supremacists believe and assert that their white children will feel ashamed of their white skin. When all people immigrate to America, Republican white supremacists believe their political power is diluted. When all people get health care, Republican white supremacists believe that'll just produce more non-white babies, which is why 12 Republican-controlled states have still refused to expand Medicare. And they're already cranking this up for the 2024 election. I got an email from Donald Trump yesterday. It said, quote, our country is being poisoned with millions of people that are illegally flowing through our borders. Many are criminals from the empty prisons of other countries. Most of these are very dangerous people. Our country is dying from within and nobody's doing anything to stop it. This is all dog whistle. This is all, oh my God, the brown people are coming. By the way, one of the other big lies that Trump promotes is that our southern border is open. It's not. Meanwhile, the white supremacist media is all over critical race theory, CRT, which is, of course, taught in law schools. It has never been taught in any public school in America, but that's not stopping Glenn Youngkin in Virginia from lying about it in his fight against Terry McAuliffe. He's running an ad right now, his TV ad that says, newly unearthed documents, proof that the McAuliffe administration actively pushed K through 12 students to be taught critical race theory. The ad claims uh, McAuliffe's actual 2015 training for teachers. But the document that they're pointing to has nothing to do with critical race theory. It was a presentation uh, back in September 2015 about disciplinary practices in Virginia schools. The Washington Post ran an article last week, the headline, Youngkin is using the critical race theory boogeyman to, tr to rile up the Trumpian base. Trumpian base is another way of saying white supremacists. Why don't the media start calling these people white supremacists? Why are they not abs you know, just openly saying the Republican Party is using white supremacy as their principal organizing principle right now, as their main organizing principle? 19 Republican-controlled states have passed over 30 laws, making it harder to vote, particularly in cities. Why? Well, guess where? The, you know, large minority populations hang out in cities. I mean, I, I see over and over and over again 
these these reports. Well, I, I watched it all weekend on on TV news. You know, from time to time, I would catch the news, and and it would be, well, yeah, Glenn Young can this, Glenn Young can that. Never talking about the fact that his entire television advertising campaign, or the vast majority of it in Virginia, is all about critical race theory. He's running on racism. So the question, are there enough white racists in Virginia to elect Glenn Youngkin? But, you know, after 20 years of Republicans going after Muslims, now they're back to their core, you know, they're back to a Richard Nixon Southern strand. Oh, it's BLM, it's black people, it's refugees. And the bad guys, those are the anti-fascists. Celebrating people like Rittenhouse and promoting white supremacists like Glenn Youngkin. There is no country in the world or time in history when racism as a political strategy has ended well for a nation. The media has to stop as far as calling this out. This is the Tom Hartman Program. They need to stop ignoring this aspect of the Republican Party's sales pitch and just call it what it is. It's a white supremacy strategy. Will it work? Boy, what a day, huh? Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, hey, Tom. Uh, I, I think we're going to have a hard problem getting through this whole racial dynamic because um, it's not just white supremacy. This is a, a, a multicultural thing that people look at black people as the most dangerous entity inside the United States. And you, you have these people that are, that are set on not accepting the fact that the Constitution and the laws of this country is supposed to protect us too. And because they're not, they're not willing to accept that, they're willing to burn this country to the ground so that they can get what they want. And it's not just the, it's not just the white supremacy. I mean, people support white supremacy. Yes, that is, the, that is the main goal of pushing this whole agenda forward. But the people that also support it is multicultural. They so? believe also that. Give me an example. Because they, you have some people that says about this critical race theory. And then they say, well, I, you, you got black people, too. I said, well, I don't want the teachers to teach my child to hate other people. But th- that's not what they're doing. That's like a, 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 a heart surgeon. You said to a heart surgeon, this is what you do for a living. You're not going to have your wife come in and say, well, I don't want the heart surgeon to do this. And, do, and you, don't, you don't know nothing about surgery. So you got these people that are willing to go into classrooms, want to go into classroom and tell the teacher how to teach. Well, you don't know nothing about teaching. So you got black people, Latino people, you got all different walks of life saying, oh, well, if that's what you're teaching my child, I don't know. I don't want you to teach my child to hate. They know how to use these messages to fool you into believing that, this is what you're fighting for. You're fighting for your child right to be hateful. Oh, absolutely. No, you, yeah. So, so no, you go. Of course, you're gonna push back against that. So they use this, these little different dynamics, to 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 fool people into believing that they're fighting for a just cause. And this is how you get all different walks of life. Because it's not just white people that's helping this agenda of. Hate, that's what I see it as. You're pushing the hate agenda, and because hate stops progress, 
they use that as a way to get what they want, what they want. And they've been doing this since they brought us here. It's the fact that, you know, um, Lincoln actually believed that black people was inferior. But and, and that was you know, that was an ignorance of on his behalf, but he also signed the Emancipation the War Act. So in those two different dynamics which was, you know, battling against each other, the, the one that he, what he believed and what he was trying to do as far as only freeing the slaves in the South and not the ones in the North, he was trying to do that dance. And people don't realize the dynamic and the nuances of what goes on that puts us in a, a, a different way of looking at certain situations. It, it gets very, very um, overwhelming. And then what we say Ah, uh, forget it. White people gonna run anything, everything anyway. So let's not even try. Let's not even try to make the changes that we need to move this country forward. So are you saying, Tyrone, that you think that black people in America are giving up on this? I think a lot of us have. A lot of us have. A lot of us realize that that it's not going to change. They're Please don't give up. Things can change. Things have changed a <laughs> lot. It, it, has, it has changed, but we've got to keep fighting to get it to change. There you go. Thank you, Tyrone. Okay, amen. Okay, let me put a couple of points on this. First of all, all of those beliefs that these uh, white supremacists hold, you know, that whenever anybody gets anything, it means that they lose something, are just wrong. And, and you know, you may want to speak to that uh, when you call in. Uh, in, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking I probably should edit my, uh, my op-ed today over at Hartman Report and include a little riff about that because I didn't. I just assumed it was self-evident. But as, I'm, as I was going through it, as I was doing <laughs> the rant the first part of the show, I was like, wait a minute. Um, I really should have pushed back harder on this, uh, number one. And number two, they're at it again. The New York Times has embarrassed itself once again in exactly the same way it embarrassed itself last week, writes Laura Clausen over at Daily Kos by using a right-wing activist as an example of a man or a woman on the street who just happens to have a right-wing position inspired by liberal overreach. This is uh, Jeremy Peters and Matthew Cullen in the New York Times. Um, this, uh, they're, they're profiling a lawyer from McLean, Virginia. He says, I'm a Hillary Biden voter. And he says, I heard my teenage daughter make a comment uh, about white men as modern-day slaveholders, and that's why I'm going to vote for Youngkin. And I'm pissed off with Terry McAuliffe, or words to that effect. Turns out this guy, this, this uh, lawyer who they're quoting as just an average dad, uh, back in 2020 published a, an article uh, railing against race-based admissions and critical race theory in a publication that launders alt-right thinking. He made large donations to Republican Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue during the Georgia runoff. And this isn't the first time this New York Times uh, writer has done this. He, he, in 2018, he offered Times uh, readers another one. It, it's just, it's just, it, it's remarkable. Meanwhile, Cinema and Mansion are flush with lobbyist cash. This is amazing. Both are taking these two. Manchin, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are the top two Senate recipients of lobbyist cash this year. Number one and number two, Manchin and Cinema. 
They're both taking lobbyist contributions at more than three times the rate of the average senator. Cinema and management's obstruction of the Biden agenda is being rewarded by these lobbyists. Um, the main lobby uh, organizations that are pouring money into their campaigns are the pharmaceutical industry and, the, and, and big oil. What a surprise. So the New York Times looks the other way. Cinema and Manchin are sold out. I'm, I'm starting to think that Kirsten Cinema is going to become a Republican. I think that's where the, the rubber may re meet the road here. I, ha I hate to say it. I would hate to see it. But I'm getting concerned. Yeah, maybe we should invite Adam Kinzinger to join the Democrats. I don't think he'd do it, though. He's, well, who knows? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, Tom. And borrowing your words, you are 100% spot on when it comes to this um, issues of racism. I had to call and add in uh, how these Republicans have been behaving for like 10 to 15 years. Go back to when a certain black gentleman, Barack Obama, ran for president and won by a whopping landslide, not once, but twice voted by black people and by whites alike who believe in equality, who believe in actual content of character and great um, qualifications. And, and, and what black. was the Republicans' biggest response to America's first black president? Birtherism. He can't be legitimate. He can't be a genuine president. He can't be a real president because he's black. Haven't you noticed? Yes, I, I'm, yeah. I'm with and you, Michael. Yeah, and, and it's not just the rhetoric, but the actions that went on, you know, thereafter. And then you had Donald Trump coming into office and citing that even further. And he's one of the biggest starters of that birtherism. And then even, like I said, emboldening the racism and encouraging the violence, even penalizing whites that stood with us black folks in solidarity. Remember, Heather Heyer and he, Oh, um, Kyle Rittenhouse said, killed two people who were out marching with Black Lives Matter protesters. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm with you, Michael. Uh, well said. Uh, Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? 
Well, you know, I, I, I tell you what, you uh, managed to push my button this morning, Mr. Hartman, uh, with your rant. And uh, I wanted to kind of pick up on something that uh, Tyrone, I believe, from Harlem had mentioned, uh, because I don't, I'm not quite sure that uh, you got his point. I certainly understood what he was saying. Uh, Tom, white supremacy is what effect, affects us as black people in the United States. Not so much racism. Racism is a very generic uh, term, uh, and it all depends on how it's being defined. White supremacy is not a symbol. It's not a Ku Klux Klan uniform. It's not a Nazi symbol. Uh, You know, those things may be incorporated, but white supremacy is a state of mind. And what Tyrone was talking about was that anyone in the United States can be a white supremacist. There are many, many black people that are white supremacists. I hate to be the one to lay this on you. Uh, I can tell you for a fact in my own life, and I'm still in my 50s, I have been called the N-word by every ethnic group you can name in this country, including some that belong to my ethnic group. You have black people that straighten their hair, black people that lighten their skin. This is a result of how we came to this country and our languages and religions and whole history being erased. And it is a peculiar situation that exists for no one other than us. Let me amplify my point. When you had Jim Crow laws, you had facilities. Everyone thinks of the water fountains and uh, bathrooms and bus stations and so forth, where it said uh, colored and white. Well, if you were Asian, you didn't go to the colored bathroom. If you were Latino, you didn't go to the colored bathroom, unless you were Afro Cuban or something like that. You didn't go to the colored bathroom. No, that was specifically for us. And the disingenuous nature of this dialogue about racism is why it never gets fixed. It's always kicking the can down the road because we're not dealing with the root causes of how racism affects black people in the United States and white supremacy because it affects us like no other group of people. So, Kenyatta, we got, we got 45 Go seconds. What's your solution? Go ahead. I realize My that's solution. a... Go ahead. You, you know, you've, you've asked me, actually, that question before. I know. I know. It just occurred I, to me. I, I will tell you that's okay. I will tell you that uh, the, the only solution that I believe there is is that we must be, and when I say we, I mean black people in the United States in particular, we must be re-educated. We, and that's why I'm very interested in, you know, they're calling it critical race theory or whatever it is. But the history of what has been done to us, we don't even know. Mm. And we have to be able, we have to be able to fix our own problems. As long as we are looking for the people that have caused our problems to fix them, we are going to continue to have the same result. Yeah, excellent point. Kenyatta, thank you. Thank you uh, for putting a punctuation mark on the conversation. Well, the Texas abortion law, by the way, is being uh, argued before the Supreme Court. Justice Kagan opened the, uh, I'm not sure if she was the first speaker, but she, her, her rant was basically, isn't the point of a right that you don't have to ask Congress? It's, 
Yeah, really. And uh, and interestingly, both uh, both uh, Biff, uh, beer, beer bong Biff, and 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 our handmaiden, um, Kavanaugh and and Barrett have both uh, apparently expressed some skepticism about this novel theory. In fact, Kavanaugh used. Uh, the point that I've made uh, a number of times about the Texas abortion law, that, that, and, you know, basically using vigilantes to enforce laws uh, as a way of getting around judicial review, uh, you know, well, couldn't Oregon do that with guns? Can we, you know, couldn't Kate Brown and the Democrats who control the legislature here just pass a law that says, hey, if you, if you, uh, you know, know somebody who has a gun and they've concealed it and they don't have a permit or whatever, you know, any little technicality, uh, you can get a $10,000 bounty for turning them in and getting them in trouble and all that. I don't think that's right either, frankly. We should not have vigilante justice in the United States. It's why we, it's why we're called a republic. We, we have the, the so-called world rule of law. So anyhow, uh, picking up your phone calls here, Russ in Upland, California. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Uh, getting back to your opening rant, per mm -hmm. se. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in the, I graduated high school, 1965. So early 60s, I'm 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, in high school. And my parents were John Birch Society members, and they weren't just members. My dad was, I don't know if it was, you know what they call it, they called a section leader. There are chapters, and there are groups of chapters ruled by section leaders. Hmm. Okay, anyway, and this was the line they gave. Everything that was pro-integration, pro-civil rights, was considered to be an issue that was under, in their minds, one category was states' rights. George Wallace, talking about segregation now, segregation forever, it was about states' rights. My parents believed this like it was the gospel. Yeah. And, and guess what? Yeah, and there was a subset of that, Rusk, uh, with the John Birch Society. And I, I remember this from the 60s. My dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting when I was 12 years old. Um, and he said, you got to see, he said, I want you to see the crazies. That's how he referred to them. So my dad was a Republican, too, but he was not a Bircher. Uh, in fact, he was offended by them. Um, but, but I did pick up a copy of John Stormer's book, None Dare Call It Treason, while I was there. In fact, they gave, you know, one guy gave it to me. And I took it home and read it. And it was all about how the State Department was filled with communists. And it totally freaked me out. Um, but, well, our house was filled with that book, by the way. Oh, yeah. It, was, it was their Bible. It out. That was their Bible. I mean, you know, None Dare Call oh, yeah. Treason was absolutely their Bible. And, and uh, uh, but, it, you know, it, what, I, what I got was that they viewed, I mean, you know, the, the John Birch Society really came into their own after the Brown v. Board decision in 1954 that ended school, or uh, theoretically ended school segregation. Um, and, and this was their big thing, was, you know, separating the races, that, that quote, race mixing is communism. You'll see the, the photo of it at the top of the piece at, at Hartman Report today. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm with you, Russ. And, and, and uh, you know, they are, they are all over the place. Russ, thanks a lot for the call. Jeremy in Atlanta. Hey, Jeremy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. First off, I want to tell you that you do a great job opining on the racism within the um, Republican Party. Thank you. But if we're really going to get this problem fixed, we're going to have to start at quote-unquote home, which is with the Democratic Party. And from my experience, things that I've seen, 
things that I've, you know, just looking at history, there's a lot of anti-blackness still within the um, Democratic Party. Of course. It goes beyond racism. It goes down to not even ever want to start a conversation about reparations. Yet the Wall Street Journal just reported that they're talking about giving $450,000 cash payments, reparations to families that were separated at the border under Trump. That's a slap into the face of the people that built this country for free and yet reap none of the benefits that had to go through slavery, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, and other things. So we're going to have to deal with a lot of the anti-blackness within the Democratic Party first before we can even move on, when, especially when it comes to black people, because, you know, we were pretty much asked, hey, come out and vote. We did it in Georgia. Got to save us from Trump. But we saved you from Trump, and we got nothing out of the deal. When we start talking about things that are specific and tangible for black people, we start getting a lot of talk around and all of this stuff. But when there was a specific problem with the Asian community, boom, you had a COVID-19 bill out there. And I'm not saying they should or should not get anything. That's not my argument. What I am saying is when it comes down to us, it's always wait. It's always, you know, well, you know, we got to worry about the yeah. gay Asian because they can have more. They, no, they it's, it's more not so much that, Jeremy. Here's, here's, here's how Democrats are talking about this inside. Um, what they're saying is, yeah, you know, reparation. We should do something about this, and you know, maybe, maybe cash payments, maybe education, housing, whatever. We, you know, we should we should clean this up. But we're afraid that if we start talking about reparations, that that's just handing gasoline to the to the Republican Party, and it's going to freak out more white people. Now, I'm not right. of that opinion. I believe that we can have a conversation about reparations. And yeah, it's going to freak out white people, but they were already voting Republican. Um, you know, I, I right. think that, you know, the white people who understand what's going on are, are uh, you know, th these lines were fixed 40 years ago, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and, and I don't think that they're going to change much. And I think that we should have a conversation about reparations in this country. But I'm telling you, that, and you know it. That there's a whole lot of people. The the objection is not, oh, we don't want to help black people, or we don't want to make this right, or you know, it's it's not that. It's that they're afraid that it's such a political knife's edge moment right now that they don't want to add more fuel to that fire. Um, and as as I said, I think that you know, I th I think that uh, that horse has already left the barn. Um, but uh, that's that's their shtick. Jeremy, I got to move along, but thank you for the call, uh, Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Well, Tom, I was going to say the connection between uh, racism and the uh, notions of, of uh, Marxism or socialism and taxes is what we're talking about here. And um, I would prefer to call it to refer to it as not racism, but classism. And I'm referring to uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book called Caste, that the the uh, the wealthy class don't think they should have to pay any taxes. We tax the and they don't, by the way, Paul. I, I know we don't. We tax the proletariat and whatever else we need on top of that, and the, the wealthy need plenty, we put on a credit card. That's the $30 trillion debt. Since Reaganomics, that's the way we operate. And it goes like this. Um, remember uh, uh, Professor Richard Wolf said a couple, of, uh, a couple of weeks ago that Marxism is kind of like, you know, wide and narrow ties. It's a, the cyclic uh, nature of fashion. Um, well, he said that, that Marx gave the most comprehensive critique of capitalism, though it had, you know, he had, A. Capital had, you know, lots of things he overlooked and so on, but he wasn't really very wrong. One of the things he said was that if you work for somebody else who's making a profit, you're getting relatively poorer. 
compared to them. And that's what's happened to, to the middle class over the last 40 years, because I don't care how much they're paying you, you as an employee are just the cost of doing biz. They're the ones who are making the profit. And you've said many times in this program, if the corporations don't want to pay the taxes, just don't show a profit, right? How do you not show a profit? You pay your workers more, and then you don't show a profit, and the workers make more, so they end up paying more of the taxes. But that means I can't rip you off. If I can't, this is basically in a nutshell, if I can't rip you off, it's socialism. Just like if I can't be a bigot, it's uh, infringing upon my religious freedom. That's what we've come to. If I can't rip you off as an employer, and I, and I don't want to pay any taxes, I'm not going to pay taxes, and I'm not going to pay you higher wages. We always keep that. If I have to pay taxes, they always say, oh, they're just going to raise the price of their product. Or if I have to pay the workers more, I'll just raise the price of the product, which is absolute nonsense. Because if they do that, what will happen? They'll cut their demand, so they cut their profit, right? They don't want to pay any damn taxes, period. That, and they say if they have to pay taxes, it's, it's Marxism, it's socialism, because these people have, have cast the idea that this country was founded on low taxes, which is absolute BS. It was right. not founded on low taxes. No, the tariffs were, fact, if, were huge. If you, read the, if you read the Federalist Papers 21, 22, 23, 24, Hamilton argues that the federal government will grow into its need and could tax you to the hilt if necessary to meet that need. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the rationale that these rich people use who are paying one-tenth of one percent in taxes or less uh, on their taxes is, I shouldn't have to pay taxes to support poor people on welfare because I don't use welfare. And, right. and I mean, this is, the, they will come right out and say this, you know, I don't use, uh, you know, public airports and I don't use the TSA. I, you know, I fly private jets out of small private independent, you know, uh, independently owned airports. Um, so I shouldn't have to pay for that. And, and what they're completely overlooking, obviously, you know, to their own benefit is, is that, you know, everything that they have is the result of the public infrastructure that allows their business to exist and that allows them to be wealthy and that provides for them in all. And, and, and frankly, I, even one of the reasons why they've been pitching, you know, uh, privatizing air traffic control is because that's the last argument against, you know, paying for, for uh, you know, transportation systems and things. But, yeah, but Tom, you know, that's, that's why they like the small infrastructure bill because they know they need infrastructure. They don't want the other stuff that, that actually benefits the people. But just remember, the small infrastructure bill, the Republican plan, is put on the credit card. There are no tax increases to pay for it. Yeah, Build absolutely. Back Better has the tax increases. Absolutely. But their plan doesn't. So when they're both passed, Build Back Better will pay for itself, but their plan will actually put the $1.2 trillion on the credit card and add it, and we'll go over $30 trillion because they don't pay for anything. They're yep. the dine and dash party. Yeah, there you go. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. What do we do? How does rational America respond when about a third of America is just gone racist hysterical, which is what's happening with the Republican Party in this whole critical race theory schools hysteria. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's like, you know, the Salem witch trials or something. It's like mob mentality. There's something fundamentally wrong with this.
Lance in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Lance, what's on your mind today? Yeah, it occurred to me, judging from the hysterical tone of all the people complaining about critical race theory being taught in the schools, I'd say, one, it's not being taught in the public schools. If it was, I'd be happy my kid is so smart they're taking law school-level courses in elementary school. Right. But the other reason is they react the way they do at the thought of anything anti-racist being taught in the schools for the same reason why kitty fiddlers don't want kids taught in the schools to avoid taking candy from strangers who lurk around the playground. They don't want kids being taught anti-racism because they're racists. Right. No, it's I mean, as as that. <laughs> it really is as I mean, simple as that, Lance. I mean, if, and and they're making this like, stuff how up. They, how dare they teach these kids? How dare they teach these kids to avoid getting into cars with strangers? What kind of person do they think I am? I said, well, if you're that hysterical about it, I'm kind of suspicious now that you mention it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Well said. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. When I was in elementary school, and that, I know it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, they had these read about series of children's books, read about animals read about George Washington, and one of them was read about Martin Luther King. And I lived in North Carolina, Jesse Helms country, but when I read the account of kids in Greensboro, North Carolina, not far from where I lived at the time, being burned with cigarette butts at Woolworths just for trying to get something to drink or get something to eat, I mean, that kind of... Uh, yeah, that kind the, of alerted me to it. Yeah, the kids and at the lunch they don't want kids going... They don't want kids going through that at all. This, uh, this dimwit politician here in Texas has a list of 800 books they want banned from the public schools. Yep, yep. Book burning is just the next step on the road to fascism. Lance, i got to move along, but thank you. Th thanks for the story. Dennis in Denver. Hey, Dennis. Hey. I would just like to, I came across you today, and you were, uh, you, at one point uh, before the break, you uh, mansion, mansions, uh, you know, donors and cinemas don donors. They are receiving donations at three times right. the rate of anybody else in the Senate. Well, I think how convenient. The Democrats are all of them are getting dark money. Not and, all of them, but many of them, sure. And, yeah. and all of the Republicans, 100% of the Republicans, yes. Well, and what we've know, got to do is we've got to expand the Democratic Party so that there are, uh, you know, fewer and fewer Democrats who are living on corporate money and billionaire money, and more and more who are being funded by we the people, by individual donations. Oh, well, the Chinese, too, are in the picture, too. I mean, uh, they, they support the Democrats more no, I'm than so, the Republicans. I'm sorry, because, Dennis. You know, nice try, but there's no Chinese money in our politics right now. Oh, oh really? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's illegal. Oh, look it oh, up. Yeah, yeah look it up. Dennis, I, you know, uh, enough. Yeah, crazy crap on my air is not not something I'm real excited about. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell her. By the way, speaking of crazy crap, I was going off on salmonella in the United States, and I said they don't have this problem in Europe. What I quoted actually before I said that was this piece from this article in uh, ProPublica. Denmark, Sweden, and Norway have largely eradicated salmonella on farms by keeping chicken houses clean, frequently testing the birds and destroying infected breeding flocks. Not all of Europe, obviously all of Europe, there's you know, 30 some odd countries, they've got all kinds of different rules, you include Hungary and, and places like that. Much of the rest of Europe has a serious salmonella problem. Denmark, Sweden and Norway, no, I should have said Scandinavia instead of Europe. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program, and I uh, got a geeky science here for you, and it's a fascinating one.
This is about, you ever heard of phthalates? You probably have, it's you know, been around for a while. Phthalates, interestingly, it's spelled with a PH, but phthalates are the chemicals that cause fish to become different genders and cause frogs to become sterile or, or to have multiple genders. They are famous phthalates for the way that they screw up fertility, reproduction problems, the endocrine system. They also cause, and we know in human beings, learning difficulties, attention, and behavioral disorders in children. So this new study that was just published, and it was, uh, let me find where it was published. Uh, it was published from the GW, GWU uh, Milken School of Public Health, George Washington University's uh, School of Public Health. And it was published in the Journal of Exposure Science and Environmental Epidemiology on Tuesday, peer-reviewed journal. What they found, this study found small amounts of industrial chemicals called phthalates, which are used to make plastic soft in fast food. It's all over fast food, particularly McDonald's, Pizza Hut, and Chipotle, according to this. George Washington University researcher Loriah Edwards, Professor I.M. Zota, and their colleagues purchased 64 fast food items from national burger chains, McDonald's and Burger King, pizza chains, Pizza Hut and Domino's, Tex-Mex chains, Taco Bell and Chipotle all around San Antonio. They found harmful chemicals in the majority of samples collected. This is not good. And, uh, you know, they banned phthalates from toys because kids were, you know, chewing on their toys and getting these things, and they're, and they're destructive. I mean, you know. But they haven't banned them from the conveyor belts that carry food when it's processed food. You know, when the little, uh, you know, the, the burgers are on their way or whatever. You know, whether it's processed food for fast food restaurants or whether it's processed foods for the stuff that you buy and then you microwave. These things are apparently laced with phthalates, according to this, uh, this study. They said industrial tubing, food conveyor belts are made pliable with this, as well as the gloves that the food handlers carry are, are rich in phthalates, and they migrate from those foods into the foods we ingest. The researchers found that more than 80% of the food samples contained a phthalate called DNBP, which has been linked to heightened risk for asthma, and 70% contain a phthalate called DEHP, which is found to be linked to an increased risk of reproductive problems. 68% of all the foods that they tested contained a plasticizer called DEHT, uh, which was developed to replace phthalates, but it turns out it may be just as toxic. I mean, this is, this is uh, remarkable. And then they point out that, you know, people who eat food cooked at home. This I'll, I'll quote from, previous research by Zoda, professor of environmental and occupational health at GWU's Milken School of Public Health, showed that people who cook their food at home have lower levels of these chemicals in their bodies, probably because home cooks do not use food handling gloves or use plastic packaging. Surprise, surprise. So uh, big deal. And they also point out disadvantaged neighborhoods often have plenty of fast food outlets, but limited access to healthier foods like fruits and vegetables. And so their children are exposed to much higher levels of phthalates. Keep your eyes on this. This is going to be a big deal. This is we are poisoning our children here in the United States because we won't follow the precautionary principle. A lot of these chemicals are outlawed in Europe, by the way. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued, 
at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. On the line with us is our old buddy, David Sirota. He's also the uh, founder of the Daily Poster, a great daily newsletter you can get in your email box at no charge. Uh, you can tweet him at David Sirota. He's also the uh, narrator and executive producer of a new podcast available over at audible.com. It's titled Meltdown. And, uh, and he's also got a movie coming out. So uh, I just want to bounce a couple things off him. Uh, David, welcome back. It's great to have you on. Uh, tell us about, first of all, your, your piece in the Rolling Stone, Democrats' betrayals are jeopardizing American democracy. I, I believe this is kind of at the center of, of meltdown of, of your new podcast. So listen, the connection between economic policy and democracy, I think, is not all that well appreciated in our larger media conversation. Bernie Sanders, as an example, has said that if we do not deliver real material help to people right now, that it will only fuel a push for the assault on democracy, will only fuel authoritarians. And, and what I think he, what, yeah, and what I think he means is, is that essentially if people keep voting for change, and politicians keep promising that they're going to deliver a real change, if politicians keep promising specific policies, and then politicians get into office and side with their corporate donors and don't deliver that real change, then what the meta message being sent to voters is, your vote doesn't really matter that much, uh, that your vote isn't that uh, important. And so then when you go to voters and you say, please vote for us, at least for us to protect democracy, uh, voters are saying, I just use the democratic process. To vote for you. Uh, you promised me change, and you didn't deliver change. So as it relates to the current situation with the reconciliation bill, this is what's on the line. If they do not really deliver real material help to people, uh, a lot of people are going to be wondering, uh, what happened in the last election? Was the last election worth it? And the cautionary tale is in our new podcast series, which is what happened in 2009 and 2010. The Obama administration came in making all sorts of promises to get tough on Wall Street, to deliver real help to millions of, of homeowners. And what ended up happening was a very top-down bailout which gave most of its money to a handful of financial institutions. Uh, there was not a lot of aid delivered to regular homeowners. Uh, and ultimately, that helped create the backlash conditions, first for the Tea Party and then for Donald Trump. Yeah. And frankly, we don't want to see that repeated. Well, in fact, I was talking with a caller about this. You know, On the one hand, you want to blow up the filibuster and pass voting rights legislation because Republicans are messing with our right to vote, setting up the theft of the 2024 election, frankly. 
And on the other hand, if they don't pass these two, both of these pieces of uh, legislation, then there's going to be a real crisis like you described. You know, cynicism will reign once again. And there will be, even if we have voting rights, they'll be, you know, we'll be screwed going forward. It's a real tough one. It's a real tough one. And right now you've got Democrats, progressive Democrats, who are being asked to trust the Josh Gottheimers of the world and just pass the corporate, you know, the so-called bipartisan piece of legislation, infrastructure legislation, and, and just wait on the other one. Don't worry, we'll get to it. I'm very skeptical about that. What are your thoughts as a you know, former speechwriter for Bernie and a good observer of the politics of this? What do you think? Look, I think the idea of taking a deal, the idea of not having there actually even be a deal, I think it's a very dangerous prospect. I mean, yeah. I think you've already got Kirsten Cinema, who's out there. She put out a statement not even committing to the, the so-called White House friends. She said, you know, it's good progress. So I think the, the, the potential chances for a bait-and-switch here are, are very real. And I think, look, I think we have to be honest about it. One of the big problems here is that the Progressive Caucus, which has a lot of leverage here still, they need that caucus's vote to pass the infrastructure bill. That They haven't been clear about what their red lines are. They have made statements that they want the reconciliation bill to be robust. They've made statements uh, saying that they want it to be strong. But those are fungible words. They haven't said, listen, X, Y, and Z needs to be in the reconciliation bill or you're not getting our votes. And that has opened, that I think has facilitated and allowed for uh, this sort of haggling situation where the reconciliation bill has just been cut and cut and cut over weeks and weeks and weeks. As Cinema and Mansion, every single day, they, you know, they make some declaration, I don't like the tax policy, I don't like the paid leave policy. I, they, they, Mansion and Cinema have been able to essentially put these statements out that prompt the Democrats to gut their own bill. Yeah. It is a betrayal from within that is, uh, I don't recall any time in my lifetime other than Joe Lieberman blowing up the public option where we've seen Democrats be so completely and thoroughly betrayed by other Democrats. Do you? No, I th and I, but I think the Lieberman example is right. And I know people use this term, the rotating villain. Uh, that the rotating villains, for whatever reason, there always seems to be one or two of these people who are sabotaging uh, the party's promised agenda. Now, if you're cynical, you say, look, the rotating villain is actually deliberate, like that, that these people actually represent more. Members oh, I think this is the this is the, the a this is the the the, the, the Koch network, the right wing billionaire network. Uh, I think this is their strategy. They don't need to own every Democrat. They only need to own one or two in the Senate. They only need to own 10 or 20 in the House. So, you know, they, they, they fully own the ones that they really need to own. And when push comes to shove, those people come out. And then the second part of that whole strategy, in the Senate anyway, is maintain the filibuster so that when, for example, if there was legislation to regulate the banks, um, you know, there are senators who are owned, Democratic senators who are owned by banks who would probably vote against it if there were no filibuster, if it was a 50 vote thing, and they would get outed and they would get, you know, they would be the subject of all this public outrage that Manchin and Cinema are now experiencing. But they don't have to do that. They can vote for the legislation and pretend they're in favor of it, knowing that it's going to be killed by the filibuster, by the Republicans. So it's like this fig leaf that everybody gets to hide behind. And by the way, it's not just Democrats who do this, Republicans do it too. Of course, and that and that is the problem. And and I keep going back to 
it's not like this is a new problem. This is exactly what happened in 2009 and 2010. And the reason we did this podcast series uh, Meltdown now is not to just complain about the past, but to say, look, the past is screaming at us to uh, at the Democrats to not do this. This is exactly what they did to disastrous consequences that led to Donald Trump. Now, the, there's another story from history uh, that we also talk about, which is the opposite of, uh, of what happened in 2009 and 2010. In the 1930s, uh, you know this better than anybody, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt came into power in a similar crisis and decided, listen, we have to actually deliver real help to people immediately. And the interesting thing is, is that FDR explicitly acknowledged and understood that doing that wasn't just an economic necessity, that it was a political necessity to preserve democracy. There's all sorts of passages, quotes of FDR saying basically, the way to preserve democracy is to show people that democracy, a democratic, small d democratic government, works for people. That if you do not do that, that you're running the risk of right-wing authoritarians saying, you see, the democratic process doesn't work. I mean, there was a, a quote from him about other countries losing their democracy. I'll butcher it here a little bit. But it's basically that it, he said other countries have seen their democracies fall, uh, not because people don't like democracy, but because they saw inept government. And ultimately, people decided to sacrifice liberty and democracy in the name of getting something to eat. And the point is, if you keep showing people that, that they're voting, they're using democratic institutions, to vote people into power, and that the people in the power in, in power do not deliver on their promises, you're essentially telling people democracy is not worth defending. That is the danger here. That is what Donald Trump sees on, and that is what another Trump, or maybe even Trump himself, will seize on if the Democrats do not deliver what needs to be delivered right now. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. David, you also participated in this uh, new movie, uh, Don't Look Up, uh, with Leo DiCaprio. Tell us about it. Sure. It's a, it's a movie coming out on Netflix uh, at the holiday season. Uh, it is, without giving away too much about it, it is the story of an asteroid is headed towards Earth, and a pair of scientists are doing everything they can in, uh, to try to warn the government and uh, use the media to get the government to respond properly about it. It's a hilarious movie, but it's also an important movie in this way. Some people have thought, I've heard about it, they think it's a climate movie. Other people think it's a pandemic movie. But what it really is about, Tom, is about whether our system, our media, our political system has a capacity to take indisputable facts, process those facts, and respond properly and rationally to those facts. Or is that system, that media and political system, so corrupt and so focused on frivolizing everything that we can't even constructively process basic facts anymore. That's the central question of the movie. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The trailer is, is dynamite, and people can check it out. It's uh, going to be, uh, you said the holiday season. You mean Thanksgiving, Christmas? Uh, no, no, cri- around the cri- Christmas season. That's right, December. Okay, cool. David Sirota, uh, he's uh, got a new podcast, Meltdown, available over on... Uh, where is it? Audible. On Audible. There we go. And uh, also check out thedailyposter.com. David, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. As always, thanks. Thank you. Always great talking with you. Ed in Carroll, Michigan. Hey, Ed. What's up? 
Oh, hi. Yeah, living near Canada, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Canada, for many years, forever, really. They had a program, 1989, Witness. It's like a 60-minute program, and I believe it was on that program because they do have specials of, of that sort. They had a thing about those phallic plastics, Lake Superior, uh, there's a paper mill that mm-hmm. was putting out effluents and stuff, and the fish and whatnot were getting caught. And, uh, they looked like, uh, well, morphodite kind of fish yeah. and stuff. They yeah. went all around the world, and every place they went, there was this estrogen mimic that was created by plastics. That's correct. And uh, this country is over 20 years behind the Canadians in that regard as well as a whole bunch of other things that we learned on uh, on the Canadian uh, you know, TV, radio, and all that. So just, I don't know, heads up to that, I guess, but uh, I believe it was Witness. That's, as I say, it's like a 60-minute program, and they have excellent stuff. I, I'm not sure if they're in still in, in production, but Canadians are way ahead of us in that regard, as well as the masks. David oh, yeah. Suzuki, yeah. he's a scientist, and he had a program once about and when you sneeze and how everything goes all around the room and just great stuff from those Canadians. And um, this country is way behind. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Ed, I'm with you. You know, I, when we lived in Vermont, we used to watch Canadian television, and it was just spectacular. <laughs> just spectacular. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.